Hello and welcome to the Granta Podcast. I'm Saskia Vogel. Today we're delighted to bring you an interview with one of our best of young British novelists for, Taye Selassie. Selassie was born in London to Nigerian and Ghanaian parents. She made her fiction debut in Granta in 2011 with The Sex Lives of African Girls, which was selected for Best American Short Stories in 2012. Her first novel, Ghana Must Go, was published in March 2013. An avid traveler and documentary photographer, Selassie lives in Rome. Driver, which appears in Granta 123, is a new story. Here she talks to deputy editor Ella Alfri about her mother's garden, Rachmaninoff, and learning to speak Italian. Taya, hi. Thank you very much for coming to see us. It's my pleasure. It's a great joy having you on the list, and I think that... Um, for many people, it's it's quite thrilling having a novelist whose book is just coming out. <laughs> Ghana Must Go is published this April. And just to kick things off, one of the things I loved most about the book is that the characters move across the world and find themselves in places that probably speaks more to a certain contemporary reality for Africans than most books that you'll find. And it made me wonder a little bit about your own movement throughout the world, and I want to know about where you grew up and what countries have made you the person you are. Ah, oh, sure. Absolutely. Well, I was born with my twin sister in London, not far from here, at St. Mary's, and my father shortly thereafter went to Saudi Arabia, where he continues to live until this day, while my mother stayed in London with my twin and me, before not before long she'd moved to Brooklyn, Massachusetts, which is where we ended up growing up. So the formative years were between London and the States. And then I went to school right through the end of university in the States, and then I came back to England to go to Oxford, and then I moved to New York, which became one of my homes, and in 2005 discovered India, where I now go once a year. So now my life sort of it's sort of a five CD disc changer rotation between <laughs> Delhi and New York and Accra and Rome, where I decided to live uh, about a year ago. Does it then feel like you you live there? Is is that home if you are traveling all of that much, or, or is home in a suitcase? Or I took laptop? a I took a photograph today from the window of the airplane and sent it to my sister with the caption "View from my bedroom window." <laughs> it does sometimes seem that way, but that is the most familiar view that I have: clouds over an indistinct terrestrial landscape below. But um, it's funny, I I have never felt as at home as I feel in Rome. I, I jokingly call it my favorite African city. Not because I don't consider it an African city, it's because Accra's really my favorite African <laughs> city. But I just everything about the culture is, is um, was when I got there and is still now familiar to me in a way that I that I didn't find in New York as much as I loved being there and um, and I've never really known in London though it's where I was born. So does that mean that there was a conscious searching for a, a place to call home? Oh absolutely, yes. absolutely. No, I was definitely, I, I had, I you know, tied up all my belongings in a sheet, threw the stick over my shoulder <laughs> and set out in search of a place to call home and I never in a million years would have expected that it would be 
in Italy. I, w I went to Italy because I was suffering from writer's block in New York, intending to stay for a very short time. And um, immediately on arrival, it was clear to me that I had found this thing that I'd been looking for. There's a, a garden in your book, and a gardener, that had me captivated, and I kept walking myself through the garden. And I wanted to know, um, you, you write not only the making of the garden, but the the maturing of the garden and, and how it comes to life really beautifully. And I wanted to know about that. I wanted to know about the plants you watch and how that, that garden came about. So there are two answers to that. The garden came about in many ways the same way that I came about from the meeting of my mother and my father. So my mother is a consummate gardener. She can make anything grow anywhere. We Friends used to come to our house in the dead of winter in Massachusetts, snow-covered Massachusetts, and we'd have tropical plants just bursting out of every <laughs> pot in the, in the home, and she can keep orchids alive with one eye closed. It's, it's amazing what she can do with, with flowers and with plants. And so growing up in her very green home, I think I sort of, I, I absolutely did not inherit her gift for keeping plants alive because I am the number one threat to plant life after global warming. But um, <laughs> I did, I think, living with her, inherit her sense for flowers and color and green and lushness and just all that is verdant and living, which I think is part of the reason that I love living in Rome so much. Anyway, this is a huge part of my sensibility. My mother's relationship, her magical relationship to plants and flowers somehow seeped into my, my sense of seeing. However, it is actually my father's garden in Ghana that the garden in, um, that Kwiku's garden is based on. In the middle of my father's Ghana, my father's garden rather, in Ghana, stands the most majestic mango tree. And it, again, it somehow lodged itself into my visual memory, my visual sense long, long ago. And it came as no surprise when it sort of seeped onto the page and blossomed there. So I left it and I love it. That's where it is. Um, you've written short stories, one of which we published in, in Grant of the Sex Lives of African Girls, mm. and um, another that we're publishing in this issue of the magazine Driver, and then you have your novel. And I know that you've worked with film, is yes, that right? Yes, absolutely. I've written three screenplays Three today. screenplays, and written sort of commentary non-fiction. So I wanted to know about this, this life of sort of finding different art forms to express yourself, and... Um, which one is the most difficult? <laughs> no question. Fiction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I was saying to someone the other day that I feel a bit as if I have a toolkit. And in it, there is photography, exposition, prose, and screenwriting. And when a story comes, whatever that story may be, I, I, I feel that in some way I open the box and I say, what is the right tool for telling this story? If the story requires depth, if we have to know the insides of people, it must be fiction. If there's just one single story and I find that that story would be best rendered visually, but there isn't, there isn't, there aren't many stories contained, then I write a screenplay. If I want the depth, but I'm feeling a bit impatient and I want it to happen quickly, then I pick up the camera. And if I have an idea, if I have a point of view, 
I make every effort never to sort of hide my own opinions, Thai's opinions, either in film or fiction, then I write an essay. That's really interesting. I love that idea of a toolkit, but I wonder if sometimes something doesn't start off like as your opinion and then suddenly characters start seeping in. Never. It never happens. Never, no, because when I when I write a story with characters, those <coughs> characters have always come whole. I don't I don't for for whatever reason that's just the process. It does, it rarely happens that in fact I can't remember a story that I've that I've written or even started that didn't begin with a moment of seeing the whole world, mm-hmm. hearing the voice and then asking what's the way to tell this story. Whereas an idea, the idea of an afropolitan for an, for example, mm-hmm. the 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 conceit that's mine. That comes with no character. That comes with no garden. That comes with no images. It comes from my my um, I think my academic mind, mm-hmm. and I, I recognize it because it's never as fun or as elegant as the characters. I want to come back to your academic mind, but let's stick to the toolkit for a little bit. And you said something about hearing that voice. One of the things I love most about the times that we've worked together is that the discussion over sentences often comes down to how it sounds and the rhythm of it. And I think you're a writer who's really careful about that music and that rhythm of her words and her sentences, and it never seems careless to me. And I always enjoy those conversations. (laughs) And as I was preparing for today, I suddenly thought, you know, for example, I use Peter Tosh to recover from anything. And I want to know about your music. What what is the music that, that teaches you that... Um, those sounds are important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, the first music that taught me was classical music because it's mm-hmm. what I studied. So I studied the piano and I studied cello. Mm-hmm. And I fell early and hard for big minor key symphony. <laughs> and Rachmaninoff was my boo throughout high school. <laughs> and then from there, I moved on to jazz. It was a logical transition. Unfortunately, I didn't take my cello with me, and I intend to go back to studying um, the cello, but for jazz. And then it was Coltrane, 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 Coltrane. And somehow from Rachmaninoff to Coltrane, I moved, well, I joined my peers in appreciation of pop music, and now I. Um, the collection is so eclectic and scatterbrained, <laughs> a bit like my uh, geographical history, that it's sort of hard to to pin it down. But I love music. It is so absolutely integral to my sense of self, my sense of the world. And um, yeah, I was saying the other day, if I weren't a writer, I think I'd be a DJ. <laughs> I, I think we're going to keep that phrase, Rachmaninoff is my boo, <laughs> and get t-shirts made. That's, that's just fantastic. Sergei and Daye forever. <laughs> <laughs> What's your earliest reading experience? Actually, it was memorialized in a photograph. I think I must be two and a half years old, so the year before I learned to read, which was when I was three. And I'm sitting in our place on um, Lanark Road in Medevale, holding a book, gripping it low, staring intently at the pages. And my mom said I would spend days doing this, but I was holding it upside down. So (laughs) I think I had this aspiration to be a reader before I had the capacity to read. And from there, I I don't remember not being read to or trying to read something. Mm -hmm. I I want to know... um your, your writing isn't 
one of the things that's exciting for us is that you can't say that she is like or she's this person mixed with this person. I think, mm-hmm. you know, reading Ghana Must Go and reading your stories, we feel that it's a new voice. It's a it's a voice mm-hmm. that we haven't heard before, and that's that's the excitement. But I want to know who the writers are who said to you, you can be a writer. Who did you read and, and think, I can do this? The writers who I read that said to me you must be a writer none of them ever said you can be a writer they, were, they all seem too good <laughs> if this is what it takes I'll never clear the bar but I'll try I'll die trying those would um, those, those are easy to name when I first read Unbearable Lightness of Being when I first read The God of Small Things when I first read Lolita when I first read Middlemarch when I first read Song of Solomon, I kept in the reading, closing the book. It was like, too good. <laughs> it was just too, I couldn't go on. Great Gatsby also. And I just, I just thought to myself, you know, whatever, whatever it takes, however one does this, this is what I want to do. When I when I love a book, I press it into people's hands and get multiple copies and give it to them. Yeah. And that that giving of books is is really important. And one of the things. I think that happens to many people is that there's an English teacher who gives them language. Who, tell me who, who that English teacher was. His name is Jim Connolly, and he still teaches creative writing at Milton Academy in Massachusetts. Actually, I'm going just before I come to England to do a creative writing visiting writer thing with his class at Milton, which tickles me to no end. And he was my English teacher in ninth grade and introduced me, and indeed the entire freshman class, to all manner of literature. But there was this one little piece of the um, syllabus that required us to do a bit of creative writing. And he took me aside after it and said, I'd like you to be in my creative writing class next year. Mm -hmm. And I come from a very traditional West African family where we don't actually take creative writing classes. (laughs) That's not why my mom had three jobs so I could go to private school. (laughs) So I had never even thought about taking creative writing. It was physics, calculus, you know, serious things. And so when he said that, I thought, um, okay, well, I'll see if it's okay with my mom. And I took creative writing with him sophomore year, and then he said, I'd like you to be in my creative writing writing class um, the next year. And he said, and we were talking about it the other day, he wrote in my comments, because at Milton we had comments, Taye is the best writer I have ever seen in my 25 years of teaching. But I know that to tell her this is to put a mantle on her shoulders. And I hesitate to do so. And um, he, he was right. <laughs> he was right. His faith in me completely inspired me to pursue the, the course that I have. But his praise of me was overwhelming. It was overwhelming. Absolutely. And you had to go to Rome to sort of... (laughs) (laughs) I I had to go to a lot of places. I'm I'm really curious about, um, speaking about the the West African background, and I'm guessing, tell me if it's wrong, that you you maybe were, it was hoped that you'd have a proper job being something medical. 
or something economics or something yeah, like that? Yeah, because I put two and two together and get five, they gave up pretty early <laughs> on the idea of my being a medical doctor, but they all thought it would be okay if I could just be a PhD because mm -hmm. then, like everyone else in my family, I could have the title doctor. So mm -hmm. when I went to Oxford to do the MPhil in international relations, I'd actually gone on into the DPhil program, diligently pursuing the doctor via any enumerate means necessary <laughs> and, and um and then I just dropped out I just dropped out because I knew and I'd always known that I only wanted to write and that somehow I would have to earn my family's forgiveness for not becoming a doctor and do you think you have we'll see <laughs> we'll see how the book does Ty in your book you have a, a set of twins and I know that you're a twin I'm really fascinated because I think that Nigerian culture and has a really special relationship to twins. Mm. I'm always interested to see it written. Mm. And I want you not so much to talk about the twins in the book because people should read, read their story. Tell me about your twin. My twin is my best friend. She is hands down the smartest person I've ever met in my whole entire life. And she's a part of me and I of her. I think... I think this would be the case however we grew up, but it's certainly augmented by the fact that we grew up together so dislocated in the various places that we were. So when we were in England, we were sort of just the two of us together. My, my mom was without a partner, and then we were in the States speaking with funny British accents, and then when we lost the British accents, we got funny American ones, and now there's only one person in the entire world who sort of comes from the same nation that I come from, and it's my twin sister. It's your twin sister? Yeah. Um, that idea of, of coming from a nation that has to be contained within, almost, um, makes me mm. wonder about the places you, you live and, and visit and, and language, mm. the languages perhaps that you speak, but also mm. the languages you're hearing around you, and what that does to your writing. Do you think that makes you a certain kind of writer because of that... Um, necessity to be able to hear absolutely absolutely i think i think it makes me a, a writer who writes by ear in the same way that a, a musician would play by ear mm -hmm. when i'm in india there's a certain music to the way the words are coming out of people's mouths and it's different no less beautiful than the music that i'm listening to in ghana or in nigeria or certainly in rome in new york which is a bit more of a medley <laughs> in london i'm i'm so i'm so I am always sort of enthralled, captivated by the way people's voices sound and more particularly the rhythms that they naturally speak with. Mm -hmm. So I'm told often, oh, your writing's very rhythmic, your writing's very rhythmic. And I sometimes want to say the way you speak is very rhythmic. You may just, you may not hear it, mm -hmm. but, the, but the cadences, the inflections, the, the rises and falls of colloquial language, it's all music. Do you feel... Um a different person in those different places because there's several places that you've described that seem to me a sort of home besides mm. Rome mm. and I and wonder besides my sister and besides <laughs> your sister and I wonder if if in the way that you're um, you find dif different forms for the story that you want to tell mm. or the idea that you want to express do I find different selves yes absolutely absolutely when um, when I'm in Rome because I came to Rome speaking no Italian I had to experience the city a bit like a child. I, I had resolved to learn Italian, which happened quickly because I'd studied Latin for a very long time, but it happened the way it happens for a baby. I just looked around at people, didn't understand what they were saying, and then started imitating them. And so in so doing, I think, found a part of myself, which is 
a mimic and an actor and a child. Mm. When I'm in India, I'm staying with my four godchildren and absolutely playing sort of like bushy-haired Mary Poppins <laughs> in their midst. And I, I, I adore it. And the, the, the stimulation of being, usually I'm in, in Delhi, just outside of Delhi in Chhattarpur, the the way in which the external stimulation just matches and bests my internal sense of chaos it really calms and slows me down mm. when i'm in new york and this is ever the more apparent now that i can compare it to who i am in rome i'm much more effective <laughs> much more efficient much more in control or in, in any anyway i operate with some false sense of control and I feel much more so a product of my schooling and a product of my training and um, and when I'm in Ghana or Nigeria then I'm family Thai then I'm a daughter and I'm a sister and I'm a niece and it it, it, it has it takes on a different shade it's all the same color but sort of there are different sfumatore different different shades of, of um, saturation Reading reading Ghana Muscle, I think one of mine, I have to make sure because I, I last read it several months ago. I One of the things I loved was the there's a section that takes place in London to mm-hmm. do with artists That's and, right. and the studio. And um, it seemed to me a London that felt very familiar to me. But from what you said, your experience of London is very much a, a, as a child. Did you spend much time when you were here at university then? Did you I come did. into London a lot? Oh, I did. I came yeah. to London all the time when I was at Oxford. So it was it's a relationship that happened in two phases. Yes. And it's still happening. Yes. When I was young, I was here. And when I'm when I'm here, I still remember some of that time. But the London that I know is the one that I got to know when I was here for three years in graduate school mm-hmm. and coming all the time and getting finding my favorite places to eat and so on and so forth. That's that's the London that I think is kind of London. Yes. More so than the one that I knew as a child. Yes. You mentioned screenwriting early on. And I'm really curious to know a little bit about that and the likelihood of seeing a Thaya Selassie film in the near future. <laughs> can, you, can you talk to us about your screenwriting? Absolutely. Screenwriting came to me um, in a moment of desperation, actually. I was thoroughly unable to finish a piece of prose and worried that it would never come or happen again. And someone told me, do you know that a screenplay has exactly the same structure as a short story, the same arc? And I thought, no, I didn't know that, but maybe I'll give that a shot then. And my twin bought me that Christmas final draft, which is screenwriting software, and I decided I would teach myself screenwriting. So I bought the book, it's called Screenplay by Sid Beats, and I read it, and I somehow managed to talk myself into um, a screenwriting lab that's run at Columbia University, which was very close to where I was living at the time. And the man that runs the workshop asked me, have you ever written a screenplay? I said, no. He said, have you published anything? I said, no. Have you ever worked in film? I said, no. He's like, why exactly are you here? <laughs> it's like, because I can do it, damn it. I can do it. God bless him, he, he agreed. And so I wrote, I wrote my first script in, in the workshop and, and through the workshop. And it was just sort of by chance that I ended up meeting a, a producer. His name is Sid Gannis. And he had been the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And I went to his office in L.A. And um, he read my first script and he said the writing is great, but it's very, it's it's a Thai Selassie script, so it's a bit vague and <laughs> lyrical and musical and totally inappropriate for commercial cinema, certainly in America. But he said, I did a film 
with a young African-American actress named Kiki Palmer called Akila and the Bee about a young African-American girl who wins a spelling bee. Yes. And he said, yes, he said, I want to work with her again. And I remember sitting there thinking, my God, so like if I can't write a movie about a young black girl, what can I do? <laughs> I mean, this is kind of like a low toss, a slow, <laughs> slow toss diet hit. So I said, um, sort of bluffing, like, yeah, 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 no, totally, totally, I can totally write a movie for this girl. And I left the office thinking, what movie am I writing for this girl? Luckily, in the archives of um, things that were meant to become fiction that hadn't, was sort of a story about a about a Nigerian girl who goes to prep school, an all-white prep school, much like Milton. And I pitched this to Sid as a movie for Kiki, and he loved it. So now Kiki's attached to star, Casey Lemons is attached to direct, and Casey Lemons is the director who's adapting Zadie Smith's On Beauty. For the screen, she's amazing. And Sid, Sid is producing. I wrote it with my best friend from Milton and Yale, and it was just so much fun. I love the sound of that film. Taya, what are you working on now? Right now, I am working on a second screenplay set in Rome. I'm co-writing this time with a Roman screenwriter and my second novel. Fantastic. We can't wait. Thank you very much for coming to see us. My pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Granta Podcast, available for free download on iTunes, SoundCloud, and selected British Airways flights. To subscribe to Granta, please visit our website, granta.com slash subscribe.